and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. So hello Chantal and thank you so much for coming on to the Neurodivergency and Mental Health podcast. Um, we're, we're just going to, you know, I, I'd read an article about you, I'll come back to that a bit later, but I was so interested in what you said and, and, you know, where you work and what you've done and your experiences that I really wanted to get you on. So just to sort of as an icebreaker, rather than me do a lengthy introduction, it would be really, really nice if you can just do a quick introduction, you know, name, you know, age if you want to, where you live and a little bit about what you do. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so hi, Sally, and thank you for having me. Um, so I have recently changed jobs. So I was working as a medical laboratory assistant processing patient samples within the NHS. And um, I now have taken on the position of a degree apprenticeship. So I study at uni distance learning and um, learn on the job so uh, it's working in a quality control laboratory and also learning about the manufacturing process at the plant so I've got a lot to learn. <laughs> you have and, and you did mention to me just before we started recording that you know the the people who you're working with they're trying to give you a feel of the whole company and and you did mention that yeah that's very good and you, you kind of what you you want to find out all about the company but the, you know the structure and, and everything's uh, you know a little bit a little bit tricky tell me about that yeah I think so I, th I think unfortunately the company are very good but um they've got a bit of a staffing issue one of the the staff member that would probably be training me is off unfortunately um unexpectedly but um I think for me I, I pretend to want to focus on a small area and have a full understanding of that small area and then branch out and I think at the moment they're giving me this massive overview and it's very hard to kind of see how everything fits together and it, it's, it feels like it's a jumbled mess and it's <laughs> it's a bit more effort untangling it than if they were to just present me with you know let me get comfortable and especially I go into work and I'm not quite sure um, what to expect with my day and uh, sometimes at the minute because the training's a bit I'm, I'm moving between departments they're not quite sure when they have me and then they've not necessarily prepared a training activity so but I think you know under the circumstances they're doing the best they can and they're really welcoming and I think uh, I'm sure when the staff member returns 
I'll get start getting a more thorough training program in place. And and you know, no one likes being the new person. <laughs> and I've had twenty three jobs, Chantel, so I've been the new person so many times and it takes it takes about a week, you know. I mean it does take longer, but it takes a week just to feel you find your feet and sort of get into it so you know i just wish you all the all the very best um over the next few days and weeks and uh, thank you. you know i hope it get it runs a little bit smoother so um you know i'd love to know if that's okay you know what is neural uh neurodivergency so i am autistic diagnosed formally and um it was suggested that i consider looking into um ADD attention deficit diagnosis which um, is something that I've never really to be honest I never really thought autism was me <laughs> until a few years ago and uh, attention deficit I think even more so I think I have this stereotypical idea in my head that I'm, I'm just now kind of starting to to challenge and come around to it as maybe a possibility so I'm, I'm currently looking at exploring a diagnosis for that or an assessment I, for that well it's you know it, and it's definitely something i've come across it's you know this is me you know i was going for an autism assessment and uh, they were saying you know um no you're you have autistic traits which means absolutely nothing you have autistic traits but you're marking very high for adhd but at the end of the day for late diagnosed women and for you know lots of people anyway um, there is, you know, it's very, very common to uh, be autistic and ADHD. Um, it's all, it's all fun and games. But um, I tell you what, on YouTube, um, there's a fantastic chap. He's Australian called Paul Mikalev, and uh, he, um, and I can let you know. I'll send you the email about him. Actually, he, he's fantastic, and he does a really good uh, video autism versus ADHD and it shows you what's autism what's ADHD and then like a Venn diagram where you fit in the middle and that was really helpful for me so I could say ah oh, you know that's that and that's that so one step at a time it sounds like you've got a lot on your plate at the moment so um, how long ago did you discover um, that you're autistic? So I was formally diagnosed about a year ago and it kind of came on the horizon about three years ago so it's still relatively new i'm still kind of getting my head around it and i think you know i, I i'm getting to a place now where i'm feeling a bit more kind of comfortable with it because i think when you get the diagnosis it's very strange <laughs> it's like nothing's changed but everything's changed in a way because nothing's changed because you've always been this person but all of a sudden your whole perception of yourself and how you fit into the world has shifted and oh you re you reevaluate everything you go over everything from the past every little <laughs> every little memory you reanalyze to say oh was that you know because of my autism like um so i've done that and i think you talk about it an awful lot when you're first diagnosed because all of a sudden you kind of idiosyncrasies and all your kind of unusual behaviours and you have an explanation for so you're constantly kind of drilling it into people no you know I'm not being weird I'm not being awkward or you know this is because this is why I'm this way so you, you talk about it so much I think you're kind of uh, 
like you but I think one of my things I'm still doing a lot is I'm still feeling the need to constantly explain myself (laughs) when probably I don't always need to so yeah I think that's what people are what are people saying though you know friends and family what what are they saying when you're saying to them I've got my I've got a formal diagnosis and this is it because you're late diagnosed like I am and um you know people well, well, certainly my people, they, they sort of say, oh, yeah, but we've always known you like that. We just call you Mad Sally or something like that. You know, oh, well, we've always known you a bit bit weird and everything else. What have people around you said to you? So I think it's made them evaluate whether they could be neurodiverse themselves. I think I think sometimes, sometimes they, it makes them more understanding and sometimes they get frustrated because the comments that kind of the little digs that family like to have at each other I kind of bat away you know with the diagnosis like shoot you know and I think it makes I think sometimes they find that frustrating that that they can't kind of always have those little digs anymore because sometimes I take it but I always have you know sometimes taken those things quite That's personally really good. yeah well it's good that you can do that because <laughs> You know, on the ADHD front, there's rejection, sensitivity, dysphoria. And, you know, you can take lots of criticism and uh, rejection from some from some areas, you know, but certain people who are very close to you emotionally, if they say something, it can be really upsetting. But we're learning. I think we're going to be learning every day until the end, really, because we just pick up something new, don't we? And it's quite fun, yeah. really, isn't it, in a way? <laughs> I, think, I think for me, I think I am quite sensitive to that because... Growing up, I always had a, a sense that there was something different. I never would have dreamt it was autism in a million years. I never would have had that understanding of autism to, you know, to to realise that. And even if I did, I probably wouldn't have had the self-awareness maybe to see it in myself back then. But um, I knew there was something different about me and I knew it was right at the core of who I was in the way that I thought and the way that I felt and for me I kind of interpret it, interpreted it as something like really wrong or something really bad was at the core of who I was so I felt like a bad person even though I was a very good student and I practically never got into any trouble and I, I still felt like there was something bad and every good thing that I did it was like I was trying to prove that I wasn't bad <laughs> and it was like I had a tick list and the minute I did anything wrong I still remember the two occasions in primary school that I got in trouble for talking <laughs> I still remember them now because oh. it, it was like it really had an effect on me because it was like I, I felt almost evil because <laughs> even though I didn't do anything wrong I knew that the way my brain worked was different so now I think understanding that you know it's it's I'm not bad it's just different is really liberated and really yeah it means a lot to me because I know it sounds so strange and logically I know that you know I, I'm not you know nobody's just like evil got an evil core and I knew that I wasn't doing anything that was bad <laughs> yeah. but I still felt because I knew there was something that wasn't wasn't how I thought it should be wasn't how everybody else I didn't feel the same way I didn't think the same way and I just as a child I just inherently thought that that difference meant something bad 
and it, and it's sad you know it's sad to hear you say that and you know it, it we read so many articles and you know we see we, we listen to podcasts and you know and and, and we, we hear it time and time again, you know, the, this story about um, being a child and, and growing up. And I've certainly got a, a pretty big history, but now I'm autistic and ADHD. All the, all the badness and everything has been taken away from it because the reason I was like that was because I was autistic and ADHD. So how was it for you growing up? And, you know, just in your, you know, in your own words, however you want to say it, but it's, it's kind of, you know, primary, middle, secondary school and college. Just, you know, give me kind of an overview of what it was like. Were you bullied or anything like that? What were the teachers like? Yeah, I was very studious. So I was very much, you know, the child that would be labelled the geek. I was, you know, I excelled academically. I was very much stuck to the rules, kind of like rigidly. <laughs> so I think, you know, when people talk about autism and ADHD, they generally associate it with problems in school. And mine yeah. wasn't kind of apparent like that. Um, I think, you know, I was quite shut down really. I internalised a lot. I lived in my own kind of little world and I don't think I really had a sense of how I was feeling for a lot of it. I think I think that it's, it's quite it's quite difficult to explain really. I think that I lived in my own world and I, I felt things quite intensely as like physical things like yeah. um so if I was sad, it would be like a physical feeling that I would I wouldn't recognise the emotional kind of connection to it necessarily. Um, I'd get very worked up if I did anything wrong, <laughs> if I didn't get the right answer or anything like that. And at the time, I didn't really think feel like there was a problem, but I think looking back, I was I was lonely. You know, I was sad. I was anxious a lot. Lack confidence, and I think looking back, in some ways, I feel quite neglected. I feel like, um, so for example, um, at the end of primary school, um, the year six leavers trip, um, we went to London, no, um, London, no, if you will, <laughs> um, and they left me. <laughs> oh no! They oh, left no. me, and it was right after my uh, granddad had passed away as well. So. Oh my goodness me, how long were you left for? Um, I can't remember, a, a while. A while. You must have um, terrified. So they'd, no, I, I was just <laughs> shut down. I was just kind of like in shock. You know? I bet you were, I bet you were. But I think, you know, coming back afterwards, I think it, you know, that really affected the way I felt about myself because nobody noticed that I wasn't there. And it really made me question how much kind of value I brought to, you know, a group, I, I, you know, and there's other occasions as well, I think because of the way I express myself, because when I was talking with things about kind of emotional things, I wouldn't always be emotional, I would be sometimes quite flat, I don't know if yeah. that's my way of coping with it or, or what, but um, I remember like one instance, um, Gosh, this was back in year two, and they'd gone taking the register to the office. So we had paper registers. Yes, <laughs> yes. 
and um, I remember there was this boy and he, he put his hands around my throat but he didn't press hard but he put his hands around my throat and I remember just going back to the teacher and saying this lad just put his hands around my throat and she just didn't do anything because like I wasn't crying or that. Yeah, yeah. They don't they don't kind of take it on board and sometimes I felt kind of invisible because I did just get on with my work and do stuff so I mean my GCSE science lessons I remember one teacher just not giving me a sheet not giving me a worksheet and I remember for weeks I remember asking her for a sheet and she just didn't seem to be listening to me so I just I didn't know what to do so I remember I just used to read the metro <laughs> which is our local and um, one of our newspapers and I just used to sit and read it because I, I didn't know I didn't know what to do because I wasn't really somebody to cause a ruckus and you know I'd asked her for a sheet I'd, I just and she used to put her foot on my stool as I was sat on my stool. Oh <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't like that. Something I used to like move that. forward and she'd move a foot forward and in the end I wouldn't be on my chair. I'd just be pretending to sit down holding my chair. Oh my and I just I have no idea why. In some ways I was just invisible. I think it was because I didn't really express myself. It was just easy for them to forget I was there. <laughs> so I, yeah, a sense of neglect and sometimes of being taken advantage of as well. So again, in primary school, um, we're doing the sex ed classes and there was um, a young girl who wasn't allowed to go to the classes. Um, her parents had uh, declined on religious grounds and uh, I was pulled out of the class and I, I, I supervised this other child that was my age <laughs> during this lesson. Why did, um, so why did they choose you and, and how did that affect you missing out on sex ed? Well, I don't know, but it's just, you know, why should I have missed out? Just me supervising this other child my that age. Oh, my goodness. And I remember uh, being asked on the playground, rather than playing, to guard some ice so that children didn't go play in the ice and fall over. <laughs> and just stand in the playground guarding some ice. That is, that's very odd. I, I remember uh, when I was at school, um, I was, well, I had to, I, I got taken out of my secondary school. It was really rough and uh, I was really struggling and getting bullied and getting into trouble and everything else. I was put into a private school that only had 220 girls in it. And, uh, and I remember I, I got a treble detention for my look and my look was my look. I wasn't trying to do an insolent look. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to do that yeah. insolent look. It was just this expression on my face and it used to drive the teachers mad and they would send me off. I wonder if this is elixithemia, you know, that, that thing about, you know, having the emotions inside of you, not being able to name them, perhaps not really understanding how other people are feeling and, and not getting them appropriately right, you know, so, you know. See, I, I, I've, found that I was quite empathetic to other people and in some yeah. ways I felt their emotions better than my own I think because the way I expressed emotions was generally I suppose I received negative reactions I learned to keep mine quite enclosed so sometimes I feel like I was in some ways overly attuned to other people's emotions yeah. to the point when I couldn't, couldn't always kind of acknowledge my own and I think that's why I shut down quite a lot because it was a bit overwhelming <laughs> kind of feeling all these things so intensely um, but yeah I think I think I, I did I was very internalized I remember kind of preteen high school um, 
and I forgot about it for a long time because I just put it in a box in my mind. But um, I used to, my vision used to tunnel in and out. Yeah. I, I used to kind of lose sight and looking back, it never even once crossed my mind to tell anybody. It I think that is ever, a, ever I, crossed my mind. I, I thought I was going mad and imagining it. Yeah, I, just, I think that is a stress response. I know that when I feel anxious, it kind of it does affect my vision. It definitely yeah, does. it is anxiety. Um, I've not had it that bad in recent years, but it just it never once crossed my mind to tell anybody. No, just, just didn't. So you I went to school <laughs> and college, and you got to university, and uh, you got a BSc honours um, in chemistry. Was that? Um, this, that's what I'm working towards now. Oh, I see. In your yeah. So I, yeah. I had a difficult time at the end of high school and through college. That was kind of I think when my emotions kind of hit me. I had a bit of a mental breakdown, and my college <laughs> weren't particularly good at dealing with things either, following on from the path of everybody else. I think they were probably worse, and unfortunately, my mental breakdown came probably right at the end of high school, so probably not the best time for continuity and no. and support. Um, Did you have to take time out and, and uh, be at home for uh, you know a certain amount of time? How did you cope with your breakdown? So, so it was quite severe, really. Um, I didn't cope very well for a long time, and there wasn't necessarily a lot of support. People didn't quite know how to help, and people were, I think in some ways, a little too intimidated to even try. <laughs> So, I don't know what to do, it, it, you know, because it's what it looks like, you know, there's a neurotypical sort of meltdown or emotional outburst and a neurodivergence person um, outburst. It just looks different and I think they get scared, don't they? Or they, you know, they, they just don't know what to do, but that doesn't help you, does it? You know, you need help at that point. Yeah, I think, I think for me it was everything had been bottled up for so long and that was the way I would cope with things and then things had started to feel like they were getting out of control with like school and all the changes and then stuff in the personal life and you know layering up things layering up yeah it's like waking up and suddenly feeling things and suddenly just like really intensely and kind of yeah. noticing the outside world more because I'd have just blocked it all out I'd have been in my own world I wouldn't have been <laughs> I wouldn't have noticed any of it I used to walk into lampposts when I was younger because I'd just be daydreaming like I'd just be entirely yeah. in my head I'd just straight into them <laughs> well that doesn't sound in the slightest bit weird to me I mean but um you you know you made it through um you know you, you made it through and you you, you started out in the working environment. I just want to make sure we get everything in because, I, you know, what you're telling me is just, you know, it's so meaningful for, you know, other autistic people. You know, you wrote um, an excellent article on LinkedIn um, about the challenges of being autistic and working in the NHS. And you acknowledge that many autistic people classify themselves as having a disability. And certainly many of our, many of our traits can be very dis disabling. And I'm very able to do many things, but what I find the biggest barrier in the workplace is the lack of support and accommodation for neurodivergent people. I mean, how do you think the workplace should change in order to make it a more inclusive place for autistic community? Well, I, th I think it's a difficult question. And I think 
autism, I suppose, and neurodivergence is probably behind a lot of other disabilities. Um, and I know that it's actually, autism has the lowest employment rate of all the disabilities. Um, but I think in some ways we, disabilities kind of, the focus on disability is kind of being lost. We are quite rightly working on improving things for LBGTQ+, I think I've got that right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and different ethnicities and quite rightly, those things need to be done. But I think in some ways, disability is not being brought forward along with those and it's being left behind. And I think for me, obviously there is the adjustments in the workplace, which do help me. But for me, what I found much harder to deal with was attitudes. Um, who amongst Chantelle? Attitude, attitudes who amongst in the um, workplace did you find difficult? So from colleagues and management, um, uh, I found it. I found it very difficult to navigate. I, I found. Um, was it like the hierarchy and who does what and 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 you know that sort of thing? Well, that can be challenging when you're artistic anyway, if it's not clear, the uh, unspoken rules of kind of, but um, no, it was more in terms of when autism was raised, there was a very negative reaction to that. Um, so... I mean, I understand that you were told, weren't you? I mean, I picked this up and I had to sort of blink and look twice again. Um, you were told within your workplace not to talk about your autism. Yeah, I was. Well, you know, how did that make you feel and, and what did that do to you, more to the point? So, <laughs> I felt awful. I can't even describe it. I felt so confused at what I'd done wrong. Yeah. Um, I felt so her and I felt ultimately it just made me incredibly uncomfortable in the workplace I did not feel comfortable in my own skin in the workplace anymore I didn't feel comfortable talking I didn't know what I could say what I couldn't say um very difficult to join in conversations because um when you're autistic anyway you've got your narrow range of interests anyway yeah. and obviously we try to take interest in what other people are interested in, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. We've got our interests. And then I think life experiences, um, in particular for me, with kind of obviously being quite a geek in my younger years and then obviously having my mental breakdown. And that's the kind of stuff that I don't talk about in the workplace. That's kind of. So it's like, what can I talk about? Yes, you know? I know. Yeah, I, I, I <laughs> it's my life you. experience. It's you know, yeah. just like I suppose people with children talk about the children, and you know, this is my. I, there's already so much that I don't say, so I don't talk about the in depths of my mental breakdown. I don't go into details yeah. about that. Um, so it's kind of it becomes this point where your life experiences aren't valid. You have to kind of erase yourself and pretend that you know there's something wrong with your because we all have different experiences in life and mine probably do vary more than most but it's kind of yeah and, and, and then it's the whole thing of there's something wrong with who I am I have to be ashamed of it I have to hide it 
masking well we'll come on to that we are going to come on to masking and and uh you know i i hear what you're saying about the struggles that you've had um you know now that you're diagnosed and the fact that um you are getting some accommodations in this company that you're working for they are they are doing you know the best that they can but what something you said um earlier i just want to pick up on it was interesting is because um, autism is a hidden disability. Now, if somebody came into the company in a wheelchair with no legs, they're not gonna turn around to the person and say, oh, uh, we don't want to accommodate you because you've got no legs. Can you grow them back, please? You know, I mean, you know, when, when you're autistic um, or ADHD, you, you've got, you know, you're wearing the mask every day just to get through the day. It's exhausting and it's, it's really, really hard as all the, as all the neurotypicals around you are, are doing all their different things and, and working and everything else. And you're, you're just trying to keep under the radar and, and, and what you're saying about the, the special interests, I'd, I'd like to come on to, um, you know, perhaps what any of your hobbies or special interests are now, but, I, I get what you're saying and I suppose something that, that we can do is keep everything focused to what's in front of you so if people were to come up to you or to me and say uh, what did you do this weekend have you been to any parties or you know um, have you been doing the gardening have you been on holiday or anything else you can just oh yeah I've been busy I've been with my family and then get back to the work at hand so that you don't feel awkward and you can feel in control because I think control so. is hard isn't it yeah, I think so. The thing is that it's just, obviously there's, there's some things that you don't share. There's some things, like I said, with the mental breakdown that you don't talk about in yeah. your everyday conversation. But Arthur's been a massive part of who I am. Like, yeah. I, I don't see why I should have to not talk about it. And I think that I think that in the previous workplace that I worked at, the reason I did talk about it so much was that I was trying to to <laughs> explain because they didn't necessarily have that understanding so I felt like I constantly had to and with the reactions that I'd had for requesting small reasonable adjustments and when I say reasonable adjustments it's not like oh this is going to cost us loads of money it's little things like there was an alarm that kept going off um it was like a fire alarm if you left the door open yes. too long and it was going yeah. all day oh no it was, it was horrendous it's to the point where I was just anxious even anticipating it going off again and um all I asked them to do was to make sure they shut the door behind them yeah and oh my goodness the the amount of so then you constantly so then you get into this habit of constantly explaining yourself and then defending yourself for doing so so you yeah. talk about it even more yeah. so the more yeah. they kind of make an issue of it the more you end up like falling back on it <laughs> I, so, yeah, I mean, they, they might turn around, for instance, and uh, something like that's happened, an actual event like that's happened with the fire alarm, and you'll make a comment, and then they want to expand the comment when all you wanted to say is, can you close the door behind you? And then it goes from, oh, well, we need you to expand the comment, and now we need to look at um, the rules of diversity within our handbook. And actually, can you come to a meeting with me and three other people? Oh, my God, it can it can just snowball into something. See, when see, all that's you not quite, do, I kind of got that you just have to deal with it yeah and then um because obviously this was a door that's regularly used at this point yeah um so obviously that didn't sit very well with me I, I got quite upset about it actually and one of my colleagues very kindly advocated on my behalf um but it, it got blown up in the head um at one point they said um 
we can't disconnect the alarm I said I've never asked for it to be disconnected yes 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 (laughs) yeah it's like this um that's what I mean yeah uh, I'm not surprised that that would happen (laughs) and that's not what you want at all it's it's gone from one thing to a a real mountain out of a molehill can you think of any other situations that have been similar when you've asked for what is really quite a simple adjustment just to make your life a little bit easier and it's gone on and on a bit oh there's been there's been loads I can't even think of them all now but I think there's been so many it's just honestly it's just horrendous so I didn't want to put you on the spot I know it's hard when you've got to suddenly come up up with it it's just been it's just been I think for me this has been the issue if I've gone to them with say a small a small problem it's kind of been blown up by almost a fear of dealing with it it's almost like oh my goodness no um yeah and that's why I've had comments like um I don't want anything to do with disability <laughs> like <'cause I'm, laughs> and it's like you can't say that <laughs> um was this when you when you were working in the NHS environment yeah this is when I was working in the NHS I, so with this job I was a lanyard at one point <laughs> Sorry, that again. I was to wear a lanyard at one point because yeah. he kept forgetting that I had a disability apparently. So um, if if a um, a company, you know, if an organisation is is getting it right, then what that means is that you know HR and the people within your department they they know that um, autistic people that are going to be coming into work because they've got so much to offer and they're they're good employees. Their knowledge and their skill set is so good. They only really, I mean, for goodness sake, they only need to look down a little A5 leaflet and just say, you know, is this, is this person feeling, um, are they feeling safe and secure in their body? Are they feeling safe in their environment? And are they feeling safe with the people they're working for? I think, um, and this is quite good about the new role that I've applied for, um, when I disclosed the, the new role that I'm currently working in, yes. um, when I disclosed my disability to them, the first thing they said was, what can we help you with? Is there anything we, we can yeah. do in to help yeah. you? Yes. And, and that's, I mean, that's what you want. I think, you know, in an ideal world, you disclose your disability mm. and then you're not, you're not forced into it, but before you start, you sent all the kind of reasonable adjustments, kind oh, of document, that's really good. Yeah. policy, and then obviously you could choose to do that if you wanted to and you told who to contact if you want to pursue that and want any help with that and because obviously it's if somebody had was in a wheelchair you wouldn't wait until after they would started yeah I think that's sometimes the problem when it comes to artisan because even though you might have been struggling without this support in place they kind of see that as well you've been doing it why are you asking for it now yes yeah and I think and I think um it's for planning isn't it I think in the same way that you know you make sure you've got your disability ramps in you know your ramps in place and your lifts I think you have to start thinking proactively and it's not you're not going to be an expert in every single condition out there nobody is (laughs) this like I said I my understanding of autism and ADHD has grown massively in recent years yeah I myself um, didn't really know a lot about it um but all it takes is if, if someone's disclosed a disability to you in the workplace, then, like I said, send them the reasonable adjustment documents before they start and give them a contact. Don't force them and pressure them into doing it, but just make sure they've got the documents there. And, um, you know, if they've disclosed the actual condition that they have, all it takes is a quick Google. 
I know it is. But it's a artistic society site and you've got a lot of advice there already. And I think in terms of autism, I think a lot of the issues come around communication. And I think in workplaces, often communication can be quite poor. And I think if you look at the internal ways in which you communicate and make that more effective, it won't just benefit your autistic colleagues, it will benefit everybody. Yeah, it if you all no, know when the workman's in, going to be disrupting your work. Yeah. Everybody can plan their work more effectively. It's, and that's, yeah, that's the same as psychotherapy. Um, when I'm talking to my clients, you see, I'm, I might have clients that come in and they don't know that they're neurodivergent. And so they're coming in with anxiety and they're giving me a list of things. They would have been on my website and seen, seen I'm a neurodivergent um psychotherapist um but they come in and they and and they don't know so you know you you, you've got to be um you've got to be just you know open and sensible and but you know every every school every hospital every prison every you know everybody just needs to have a sheet to say you know what do you know i don't know just what we need you know what we need and talk to us and ask us and it's really good i mean you're working um you're doing um an open university well you're doing a university degree and you're doing that at home so how do you find studying at home so i was initially doing an open university degree till i got the degree apprentice position and i'm now um enrolled with man matt um so before that, I went to Aberystwyth University for a while. This was around the time when I wasn't particularly well. So unfortunately, I didn't manage to finish it. Um, and Aberystwyth University were very supportive. But one of the things that I really liked about the Open University was all the information was there for you. Yeah. Um, you weren't drip fed it. It really helped with your kind of sense of organising it all, getting it in your head, knowing what to expect. Um, and kind of you know, you could go for it at your own pace. And that was like hugely beneficial for me. Um, obviously there were some some downsides. So I don't like, I don't like the fact that it's kind of always hanging over me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause you know, it's- How long does your it take? Your timetable. Well, open uni, it varies depending on the course, but at the moment I'm doing a Manchester Met degree now because <laughs> I'm not just swapping around every uni. I uh, I started off at Aberystwyth when I was very poorly, and then when I got older, I um and then I got well again. I decided to carry on my degree with the Open University, and then um, this job came up, which was the degree with my Matt, and I thought this is too good to turn down, so um I kind of moved for this job. And uh, yeah, I think it's. I do think online learning is, is quite good. I think at school, I think I would have found it really good actually anyway, because I think, I don't think I was particularly challenged at school. And yeah. I think in some ways it means I find it very difficult when I don't instinctively know something or get something because I don't think I necessarily have the skills to work through it because I'm used to just opening a book and kind of knowing yeah. it already in a way and that's why the open university was good and i i totally understand what you're saying you know i like to have all my books all my research uh you know when it starts the middle and the end and if i want to start in the two-thirds of the way through and then come back because it makes more sense to me i like to do it that way and researching for me I, the, the idea of drip feeding i think i'll probably find oh, i hate it <laughs> 
I find it quite hard. But you're yeah. doing it and you're here at this job. And I and you know, I absolutely really hope that it works itself out and that the the person comes back who's going to help you be trained. But you know, when when you're not working so hard and you know, because you we all when we've been masking all day, we come home and we're we're pretty exhausted and everything else. Yeah. But what do you like to do? You know, whatever it is, you know, what do you like to do when you're when you're at home? Well, some you're weekends are just uh I just have to have a catch up on sleep every so often. I'll have a weekend where I'm just pretty much wiped out for the weekend. But um, I have pets. I'm a, I'm a crazy pet person. <laughs> what pets have you got? So I've got a cat and a rabbit. And um, my pets are not genetically blessed, shall we say. So <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it means they've got an array of health issues. So um, my cat has hypothyroidism, cystitis, cardiomyopathy, and is potentially starting with kidney disease. And oh, it has a, <laughs> so yeah. it, it becomes a bit of a, a mammoth task keeping on track of all their vet appointments. I didn't expect this one. <laughs> How on earth do you afford that? You know, we had health insurance because sure we had a cat with, uh, you know, the thyroid and the, the operation and everything else. And thank God we were um, insured because it would have cost a fortune. How do you cope with that? Well, it's, it's difficult. Obviously, I've got the insurance, which helps. And oh, my pets good. know me very, very, very well. So they know that I pay. So they're happy to let me yeah. sell payment plans. But I mean, my, I had another rabbit that passed away um, last year. And he had chronic disabilities throughout his entire life. So, and I think some of the expenses... <laughs> Yeah, it's incredible it's really lovely me. that you're looking after <laughs> these animals and and our pets are yeah. they're so important to us and they they give us unconditional love and we we don't have to explain our compassion and the way that we look after our pets and they gave me a, a sense of, especially the rabbit that passed away last year because he was kind of disabled throughout his entire life yeah um he really came at a time when i was really really down and he gave me a purpose in life and he gave me that sense that obviously like I said there was times when I feel like nobody would have noticed if I wasn't there yeah. <laughs> didn't really make any difference funny, and to funny him I would have does. and because yeah. he, even like the tangible he needed his medication yeah. and uh, a lot of people would have just put him down but he's still yeah. happy I can give him something that other people can't give him and also I suppose seen from the other side that those other people might have written him off because he was disabled and yet he had so much to give and he could still have these happy you know he could still be happy and live a happy life and he did for the majority of his life he had some struggles and sometimes like you learn, yeah you learn a lot from your pets about your own uh you know your own life and you know they're sentient beings and at the end of the day Chantel we are just human beings we're a sub we're a subgroup of the great apes we're primates <laughs> yeah, and that is what we are and we're animals and we love we very much love our animals uh, you know I, I love nature I mean do you do you get the opportunity to just spend time outside not as often as I should um so I have in the past struggled with agoraphobia yes yeah and um I'm not so bad now and obviously I go to work and that but I'm still I'm still not great at just just going out without a purpose or without a set thing to do I don't know why it I, I think it's that thing of 
Yeah, I, I think it's partly obviously the way I experienced my autism, but um, I broke my foot many years ago now, and I think it's that fear that, well, what if I can't get back? Because yes, yeah, yeah. And I think I, I don't like going out without a, without a plan. So I don't do it as often as I should, um, but I do like getting out in nature when I can. I'm very lucky that I live um, close to a kind of small woodland. Um, oh, lovely. So like a country park, so I can, I can pop but down that's there. that's enough, isn't it? We don't have yeah. to start hiking up the Himalayas <laughs> and doing all that sort of thing. It's just getting some fresh air, being outside if the rabbits yeah, are Yeah, I out. mean, it is something, again, that now I'm getting better, I am kind of building up and I am doing more, so I'm trying to go out venture out a bit further, venture out a bit more. But I think for me at the moment, my main focus has to be obviously my pets and this new job and degree. Yes, and that's Sometimes quite I just need to sleep afterwards and <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, and it's really, it's really important just to decompress. I mean, I've just started uh, Grey's Anatomy. I'm on season two and um, I love Grey's Anatomy and there's, there's always a box set to yeah. be watched. And so, I have yeah. to do it. That's what I do in my... Because I work at home and then I go off to my therapy room. But when I'm at home, I have my lunch and I sit down for um, two episodes of Grey's Anatomy. Or horror. I love horror films because they <laughs> calm me down, Chantel. Horror films calm me down. So, um, you know, we all have something that we do to decompress and to yeah, calm down. Yeah, I, I tend to have like little, I'll get obsessed with watching something for a while and uh, then I won't do it. And The Sims, mm -hmm. I quite like The Sims and quite like... Um, just watching very rubbish things that I can just get lost in. Well, it's Muzak, isn't it? It's Muzak, it's something for the mind. It just keeps us going. And, you know, you have, you have such a, you, you've got a busy life and uh, we're just sort of coming to the end of our, um, of our lovely interview now. And I, I suppose just to really wrap it up, you know, um, it's not a question that's here, but it's just a, a very, very sort of straightforward question. You know, what do you want to see you know, moving forward um, in society, in the workplace and education, what, you know, what is the sort of overarching thing you want to see as far as autism is concerned and, and how, how it's supported? I think in terms of autism, I mean, we actually, there's so much that needs to be done. It's quite difficult to know where to even begin. So I've recently been researching the new national autism strategy autism i think is the only disability that has its own um act its own there's the autism act and it, it's shocking when you look at it lifespan 16 years less than the national average yeah premature deaths um the lowest employment rates um high numbers of children unhappy in schools um, suicide as well suicide yeah, that's um, one of the two most common ca causes of premature death. Because um, we, in every single area, we experience more premature deaths, apparently. Um, but in particular, in suicides and epilepsy, um, the fact that 70% of adults don't feel like they're getting enough support. And I think I recently went to a, a focus group for SCOPE and... Um, I can't say too much, obviously, because I want yeah, to respect the confidentiality okay. yeah. of the of the members. But um, they, we were talking, and one of the things that came up is they kind of went, "Oh well, ask your you know ask your support worker to help you get out more." 
and I was like, I don't have a support worker. And like, oh, I don't necessarily get, want to get You need to get, get your social more. worker yeah. to get to get yeah. you. And I thought, I haven't got a social worker. You were like, well, who have you got? I was like, when you're autistic, you have nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you kind of navigating your way through life. And I think, you know, for me, I've always been able to do the big things better than the little things. And the little things can trip me up. Yeah, so all yeah. your life admin, all your little basic day-to-day -day tasks, and sometimes I think if they just give you a little support for those things, you could go on and do like absolutely massive things. Because, <laughs> but they just—I just get stuck on these little tiny tasks, like cooking, cooking my tea. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just massive. But ask me to go and write an essay for my uni, and yeah, I'll do. Well, please write more <laughs> because you know I—I I really loved your article. I love the way you write. I love what you say and there were lots of comments um, after your um, article and and you know you can advocate um, and by taking by taking action when you've got a tiny little bit of space in between studying and working you know you, you've definitely got something to say and a lot of experience behind you so Chantelle thank you so much for um, the time that thank we've had today. <laughs> today I've really enjoyed talking to you and you know, all I can say really, I wish you all the best in this new job and uh, look after your, your pets and their, <laughs> their you know, differences and just, you know, have a great rest of the week. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank, Thank you. you so Bye. much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.